Welcome to Dare to be Legendary, a Diversa Partners podcast. Each episode, we feature conversations with some of the brightest minds in tech, including founders, executives, and investors who are entirely disrupting this generation's ecosystem. They are the ones who dare to be legendary. Hi, everybody. This is Jack Dunn, partner at Diversa Partners. Today on the Dare to be Legendary podcast, I'm going to be talking with Jeevan Kalamiti, the CEO of OpenSpace AI. Thank you again for coming on. I enjoy having these conversations, and it's been awesome getting to know you and work with you these last two years. And I know that uh, our listeners are going to be excited to, to hear your story and learn more about OpenSpace and, uh, and learn from you. It's a pleasure to be here. We were introduced by, I think, your investors from Menlo in the fall of 2020. Um, what a great year. And I feel, I, I don't, I know it's not the case, but it feels like we've worked together almost continuously since then. Probably these last few weeks are the first time in a while that we have not had a, uh, had at least a weekly check in um, hiring your head of marketing, your head of finance, your head of engineering, your head of product, and your head of sales uh, over that time. I'll refrain from asking who your favorite is, but uh, maybe we could start, you know, I, I really want to get into your story personally, because I think you've got a fascinating background and, and kind of founder journey, but maybe we could start for our listeners just with what open space does, the why you started the company, how you fit into your market um, and the customers you're serving today. Do you mind giving folks kind of a, well, whatever length version you choose of, of that? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do that. And I know I, I miss our weekly chats. It's sad we gotta <laughs> make, up, make up new executive roles just to. I, I'm good at that. Yeah, you just have to sort of rearrange the the C-suite letters, and then you just pick pick <laughs> whatever the the additional letter is. Yeah. Yeah. What letter do we not have? But anyways, to answer your question, yeah, what Open Space does is is pretty simple. So big picture, we're trying to simplify the lives of of really anybody who works in real physical reality, but the specific focus is on builders, people that build and maintain all the buildings that we you know, use to work and live and play in. And the way we do that is by using computer vision and AI technology. So the first core product is something really basic. It allows you to see what's going on in a job site or in a project without literally needing to be there. So we're able to create what looks in many ways like a Google Street View of a, of a project so that you can be on your phone or your computer and look around at really anything and teleport into your job. Not only do we digitize it one at a time, we create a time series so you can see what's there not just today, but yesterday or a week ago or five years ago. And this just solves a lot of problems because a, a picture's worth a thousand words. So just having that record of what's there is a lot better than just uh, remembering what was there, maybe Billy remembers or something. So I, I don't know. You know, if if we focus on on people building huge buildings and small fitouts that are three to six month projects. So if you've ever remodeled your home, you've probably been through some of this pain where you're trying to get someone to quote your kitchen and they can't do it because they don't know what's behind the walls. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if you could just look and see, or they want to get paid for something, but you're not sure they finished it, right? So we solve problems big and small. And what I'll add to that is what we what we did is just to make it really, really easy to collect these visual this visual data. Like we didn't invent the idea that a picture is a thousand words. 
what we did is make it really, really easy to collect these images. So with OpenSpace, what you have is people that are walking around the project anyways, which is a normal thing, you know, for a superintendent to do. Mm-hmm. They just take a, a 360 camera. We don't make hardware, but we use these uh, consumer products like GoPro makes 360 cameras. And a person walks the job. And as a byproduct of them walking around, the camera's sort of clicking away. We take that video data and then we're able to map it down to the floor plan all automatically. So it's very simple and easy to use. Our customers value that a lot. And now that we have all this data, we can build more than just a visual replica of their project. We can actually start analyzing what's there, quantifying it, counting it. And that uses a different kind of level of artificial intelligence where we can tell, you know, Joe Superintendent at Acme Construction, you know, your trades installed 12,000 square feet of drywall was hung and 5,000 was taped last month. And the system can do that all automatically. So lots of cool things we can do with the data. And that is what we've been doing and where we want to go. Very cool. I don't know that we've ever talked about this. You know, you started with that macro statement of we we are building this technology for people working in in physical reality. And obviously the the application you guys have really focused on is in the, the building and construction world. How quickly did that focus come into view for you? What by the time you started open space was was construction and builders going to be the primary focus? Or was that sort of physical reality capture over time the sort of big picture? And did you spend a lot of time diligencing other possible applications? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say um, we knew we wanted to build this for builders pretty much straight away. But, well, actually, let me rewind. So yeah, when we started the company, me, Mike, and Philip decided to start the company, we thought we would just bootstrap it for a little while. You know, this is company number two for us. So mm-hmm. we had a little experience on on starting and selling technology companies and more important. I had gotten experience with developers and builders at at my prior company. So I'm a big believer in solving customer problems is why companies exist. We make stuff that solves someone's problems and it should solve a big enough problem that they're willing to pay you for it. Like those are pretty key ingredients to having a company. And so we're pretty sure that that builders had this problem or I wasn't pretty sure. I knew it. I knew it because I've been building similar products for them. And then the question was, are there any other markets where this might apply better or not? And so we, we followed a, a real lean startup process where we weren't, I guess I'll say this, it wasn't like tech guys navel gazing and thinking <laughs> big thoughts. Yeah. Um, we were just on job sites, building this stuff out, getting the reaction, uh, making sure our hypotheses were correct and tweaking them when they weren't, exploring a few other markets. And so it was more of, trying to solve a felt pain and problem that we knew about with this technology solution and then interrogating whether that product could grow into a large company as opposed to having a big vision and then hunting around for someone who had that problem. Yeah, really interesting. And I hear you on the, you know, we often talk about in in startup world sort of as this a, uh, a technology in search of a problem to solve, right? Or an actual uh, customer problem, an existing market. We had um, Shaheen from Lux on the podcast a little while ago, and he was sort of talking about, you know, if you're going to do something on the bleeding edge, you should be pretty confident that if it works, people will adopt it and use it, right? And, yeah. um, you know, open space, I feel like it's such a good 
good example of that. Um, maybe before we move on to, to your, your personal story and sort of how you think about leadership and, and operating open space, you touched on the using open space to determine when and for what work people are getting paid, right? Kind of that question of like, you know, how much progress has actually been made if people met their obligations. And, you know, I, I know we've talked about previously leveraging open space as a technology to assure building to a certain standard, right? From a safety standpoint, from an insurance standpoint, would you care to say something about that kind of broader platform opportunity and how maybe how in focus that was when you started the company and and how you are finding kind of the appetite to leverage open space in that type of capacity thus far? Yeah, totally. So when we started the company, we were pretty darn sure we had a good product on our hands. And that's because we hadn't quite finished it, but we we knew what it would needed to be. And the PM's these are the construction project managers that we were working with were like, you know, if you can get that to work, we'll definitely buy it. I mean, verbatim, yeah. that's what we were hearing. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, that's good. So, you know, we can pass go and collect $200. And um, the thing we needed to figure out at that point was like, will this take us into to anything beyond this product where we can build a whole company around this? And I would say the things we're doing now we actually did imagine at that time yeah i mean don't get me wrong we were like hand waving maximally when we would get to do these things would they work we didn't really know but we had a pretty good idea so for example we knew that if we could make a great experience that's so easy where you just walk around and then boom you can look at your project from the trailer or from half the world away we knew that that would have a lot of value. And we knew then, therefore, that that would generate lots of data. And we were pretty sure at that time that we could train artificial intelligence systems to, to see what's in those images and begin to understand what's in there and, and classify them. So we had a good kind of general feeling about the technological envelope, you know, that that was something that we could do. And we were pretty sure that we could do it better than any other company too, given the Mike and Phillips background. So that was yep. like a competitive advantage point for us. And then last, we knew that these problems that we're talking about are like real things people just have to do. So they weren't just imaginary. So in that sense, I think we, you know, so every now and then I look at our very old board decks and I must tell you, it's like pretty high fidelity. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's kind of like, huh, we sort of knew what we're talking about. I mean, don't get me wrong with like other companies that I've helped out or started. Those early board decks are laughable. You know? <laughs> um, and I'm not going to say that our early board decks are like the perfectly executed crystal ball, but right. a lot of the ideas were actually the vision like, is there. Yeah. Kind of in there. And now we're actually doing them, which is pretty gratifying. The other thing I think is kind of amazing. And this, we'll see if this actually continues to be true, but you know, our like three and four year PL projections, surprisingly accurate actually yeah, huh. we have beaten them which like never happens right know? yeah so yeah. that's something i'm you know give ourselves a pat on the back for at least so far yeah i mean it's certainly been my experience working with you guys that the uh you know the the, the second time around uh entrepreneurship heuristics and chops sort of sort of shine through from that operational rigor standpoint so that doesn't surprise me 
Very cool. Uh, maybe we could we could talk about some of that sort of learning that that kind of led you to to how you and the team operate open space. And I was, uh, you know, it, it's funny because I, I talk about you to a lot of people, right? So I feel like I'm relatively familiar with with your story and your background, and it's a fascinating one. And I think for me, you know, I I break it, and maybe you think about it this way, and maybe you don't into sort of the Siftio 3DR chapter. Um, and then you have this sort of like design media, digital design lab sort of phase, right? With a variety of companies. And then you have kind of a, an earlier part of your career where you're basically in sort of that world, but also acting and in sort of the arts community and doing a bunch of stuff like that. So my thinking was to ask you about sort of what, how you think about those phases. I talk to people a lot about like their career inflection points and the most important moments. They don't always see it the same way that I do. So I'd love to talk about what you think of as the key phases of your career. And then maybe we can get into some of the key learnings or growth that you took away from each of those. Yeah, totally. I can give you the history there. The first thing I will say is, it's totally nonlinear, um, <laughs> not totally nonlinear, but fairly nonlinear. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there are people I've met in my life who are like, yep, when I was seven years old, I wanted to do whatever. And that's what I've done. And that's great, man. Like more yeah. power to them, but yeah. definitely not the case for me. I mean, the classic entrepreneur version of that is like, you know, when as a kid, I started a babysitting club or I had a baseball card arbitrage business or whatever. <laughs> Um, you were sketching construction sites from your bike and you drove fast. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely not. I was like, (laughs) you know, school was fun. I liked, you know, I enjoyed school and got good grades and all that. And then, you know, I thought music was fun, played some instruments and would draw, but I had no, like, I'm going to, I'm going to be a CEO someday. Like whatever, (laughs) man. (laughs) Um, so I wasn't thinking about stuff that way, but to those chapters, um, you know, I guess starting with undergrad, um, I did this major called Symbolic Systems, which was kind of a, it's an interdisciplinary major focused on, you could call it cognitive science, but it's a bit more technical than that. So I studied philosophy on the one hand and artificial intelligence on the other. And, you know, we can get into why I was interested in those things. But after undergrad, I, I didn't have like a clear career plan at all. I just thought that moving to New York would be interesting. And, you know, I was sharing this with a few others. I, I don't know. But everybody else's senior year college experiences, but there's always a conversation. So what do you do after graduate? And I found that at least where I went to undergrad, there were a few kind of pat, like quote unquote acceptable answers, where it's like, I got a job at X. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. You know, I got this job at this new company. It's called Google. Well, that sounds interesting. You know, um, you could say that. You could say you are going to grad school. Oh, I got I'm gonna do a PhD in physics or whatever. Oh, that sounds cool. And another option was just to say you're moving somewhere. And as long as it was far enough away, that was like a good enough answer. So, <laughs> that you know, was like a sufficient threshold su- of achievement. Yes. Just like, I am moving. But, yeah. 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 And so, you know, so I went to undergrad at Stanford, right? So if you said, I am moving to Mountain View, people would be like, well, what are you going to do there? And then, <laughs> uh, but if you could say, I'm moving to New York. They'd be like, oh, that right. sounds great. And so that was basically what I did. Moved there with a few friends. It seemed like an interesting place to live. And, you know, I could write software or something. I wasn't, you know, worried that I wouldn't be able to, like, pay rent. And And, um, and, and could you do that then? You were were a coder. You were 
fairly adept technically by that point as, as part of your major or was that sort of a side a side pursuit as part of my major so yeah uh, my major like i did a lot of computer science as yeah. part of okay. what i was doing so you know like looking back i don't know if i would have hired myself as a software developer you know i can do stuff sure but I don't know if I was the best or anything like that. I would never say that. Yeah, um, but enough enough to be dangerous. It would it, I mean, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole necessarily, but I think that intersection of, or maybe let me back up on this question. I think now AI and ML is such a, you know, mainstream, maybe buzzword or topic or whatever you want to say. You know, there's so much research dedicated to it. And, and so many folks, I think, working on projects related to that at the academic level, was it already a major popular field of study at, at Stanford? And am I right in saying like the late 90s, early 2000s? Or was it a relatively, you know, one amongst many versions of computer science that people were were pursuing deeply? Like what did the, what did the kind of the course of study look like then? It definitely was one of many things. I think not many people got into it. And it yeah. was not that it was a nadir and not nadir, but it was close to that for yeah. AI at the time. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, the reason I got into it, there was no sense of commercial applicability. I wasn't thinking right, about that right. kind of stuff anyways, about anything for better or for worse. It's an Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny when I got to undergrad, I, what I thought I might major in, I thought I'd do a double major in biology and philosophy. Those were what I was interested in. And the thing I was interested in in particular was like intelligent systems. Like, you know, I thought animals were cool. They're like amazing. We humans are amazing. Like, how do we solve problems? And so I was into neuroscience and things like that. And then this may seem kind of ridiculous, but it's totally true. Uh, I was at home for Thanksgiving or maybe it was spring break or something, my freshman year. And my parents had a subscription to National Geographic for whenever I was a kid. And they didn't cancel it after I left. Yeah, um, it just kept piling up. Kept piling up. And so I was just <laughs> like flipping through the National Geographic magazines at our house. And there was one that had this cover. I still remember it to this day. It was just one word, robots. <laughs> and that was like <laughs> robots. Robots are cool. And there was the article had like almost no content. It was just some pictures. Of, <laughs> actually, this guy Rodney Brooks, who's a pretty famous robot guy for people that are in, into that, and some yeah. of his um stuff. And I was like, oh yeah. I mean, like you could maybe like build a system that had some sort of intelligence. That seems that seems cool. You don't have to just merely study them. And then I was like, I guess I should take a computer science class. And that was pretty much that. I was just interested in in that, generally speaking. And to get even to deeper level, like the things that constituted AI at that time, or at least at Stanford, those are pretty different, actually, topics than than what people consider AI. Like machine learning wasn't really a thing. It mm. was like these logical expert systems, like yeah, you know, a logical predicate. They called expert systems. Actually, it's kind of funny. The stuff I studied as an undergrad from the AI stuff, I was kind of like, this doesn't really seem like the way animals or people work. It just seemed like, <laughs> right. we're not like, hmm, right. in order to pick up that glass, I'm going to solve a complicated calculus problem like, <laughs> in my mind and then execute it. It's like, I just grab it somehow. And so 
that uh, that was a thought that was kind of lodged in my head as an as an undergrad. Fast forward to grad school, uh, you know, I kind of got updated on machine learning, and I was like, oh, this seems like a little bit more more like how certain problems actually get solved by by animals. Now, of course, that's not yeah. really how animals work. Or actually, what do I know? <laughs> but um, <laughs> it was it was pretty pretty interesting. So, anyways, to answer your question, it was not there weren't that many people that were studying it, you know, overall. Yeah. So it wasn't like popular or anything. At that time, human-computer interaction was like the big thing. Oh, interesting. Okay, gotcha. Really, really, really interesting. And so, okay, so then you go to New York and you're you're sort of like open in terms of what path that's going to take you down. Where did you grow up? Are you from the East Coast? No, well, I was born in like the Bronx, but we okay. moved, my family moved to a really small town in Arizona when I was eight okay. years old. So I really okay. grew up gotcha. in a almost a literal one horse town type of place. <laughs> there were more than one horse, but you know, you get the picture. Yeah. One high yeah. school town. And so uh yeah. Okay. So it was it wasn't a it wasn't a going home then, not a deep network in New York. No, it was going further away from any place I could have called home actually. Yeah. I think a lot of lucky breaks happened to me uh in a sense in that like I got this job as a Java developer at this company. And I remember getting this assignment and what they're asking me to do, I was like, this doesn't seem possible, but I was like, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I feel like you guys are asking me to rebuild Photoshop, which is <laughs> hard. <laughs> um, but uh, luckily the company went out of business in two months. So that was pretty funny. Yeah. Getting laid off was, was, was so, it was so funny, man. God, because they took it really seriously, which is nice. But I yeah. was like, I am 20 it's years okay, old. Guys. Right. I don't care. <laughs> right. I, right. You know, I rent is literally $333 per month. I can nice. make it yeah. out. And um, they even escorted me out with a security guard, which I thought was pretty funny. That is a um, nice touch. Did you have enough stuff to fill a box or no? No. No. Yeah. I no, didn't, yeah. didn't really have yeah. much of anything. Um, <laughs> I had some of my Java books, but that's basically it. But um, yeah, after that, you know, it was kind of cool. Then I started to do other things. Um, I did work in the neuroscience lab doing computational modeling stuff, but then I got into more of these kind of technology slash art projects, worked on some movies and it was, it was a lot of fun. At a certain point, I realized that I should try to like focus my energies on something. And a friend of mine who I was, went to undergrad with, we're in the same major roommates. His name is Dave Merrill. Um, we're in a band together. Uh, he went to so, MIT. Still, kind of, or you were? No, no, undergrad band. Um, okay, gotcha. Yeah, we have talked about getting together to play music. He lives not too far <laughs> from me, but, you know, nice. being parents, and he's also a CEO of a company, not a lot of time. But, uh, yeah, he, he went to MIT kind of pretty much right after undergrad. And, yeah, it was key. I had a conversation with him during my New York time, and he was explaining to me what he was doing at the Media Lab, and I thought it was super cool. And, um thought it would kind of be a way of merging some of the technology stuff I was doing, some of my intellectual interests, and then some of these creative things that I like to do that were very much about, you know, like designing various experiences for people. And I was lucky enough to get in. And that's that kind of got me more into the world of of technology from a kind of commercial point of view was um, doing some work at MIT that eventually became our first company. Very cool. And, and the Media Lab, when you like entered there, 
was that with a class? Was it sort of, did you design your own course of study or were they fairly tracked or was it all fairly open, fairly open-ended? It's pretty open-ended. I mean, it's not a huge department. And so you come in with a cohort of, I don't know how many people, I actually have no idea. Is it 30, 50 students, something like that? And it's it's like that master's program is more like a PhD in the sense that it's not like you just take a bunch of courses and you're finished. You're going to stick around for more than a year, two years is the, mm-hmm. is the goal. You're going to write a thesis that's going to be ideally good. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you take some classes definitely to like shore up any things that are weak or things that you want to learn about. And that's pretty much that. Now you can do a PhD there too, but as a PhD student there told me the PhD at the media lab is kind of like the master's extended remix um, in the sense that you stay longer and you do a bigger thesis. And so, yeah, it wasn't very open-ended. Now some groups were operated more as a team, definitely. And some like mine were like total random walk safari, just do whatever you think is interesting more or less. And this is maybe showing my own ignorance about the sort of academic meets entrepreneurship landscape at the time, some proxies to what we would see like more formal incubators doing today, or was there like no real conversation about like commercialization of anything that you were working on? It was really sort of for buildings and to see what, what could be built sake. Yeah, I would say, I mean, that ecosystem was kind of there. I think it's much more mature now. Yeah. Um, but the time, there's a couple of people there that were, you know, if you wanted to think about starting a company, there were some resources for sure. Yeah. And then Sloan, which is the MIT uh, business mm-hmm. school, was physically not that far away. So you'd sometimes have Sloan students kind of wandering around. It's almost like, you're <laughs> like oh, any ideas in here, guys? <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, so there was some support for that, but it wasn't. I would say now it is a little bit more robust, but unless things have changed, which they may have well done, like people did not go to the media lab to like start companies. Start it was companies. not yeah. like a entrepreneurship program at all. Yeah. It was way more conceptual than that. And you yeah. started working on, on Siftio there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. started working with Dave on the Siftio concept there. And yeah, that was that was company number one. I mean, we just this is like a combination of good fortune and, and being at the right place. But the people that organized the TED conference just found out about what we we're doing and wanted us to do like a TED talk. Oh, um, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. I remember Dave and I were like, whoa, this thing does not work well enough for us to do a TED talk. <laughs> but then we're like, but you know what? We've got like four months. That's plenty of time. Like, let's just make it happen. And yeah. I think that was a good decision. Because, I mean, Dave crushed it. He did a great job, Ted, and that got a lot of attention on the idea, which allowed us to then explore the idea of commercializing it and turning it into a full-fledged technology company. Yep. Very cool. And how long did you operate? How long did Siftio operate independently before the acquisition? I think about four years or so. Yep. Gotcha. And... I'd be curious to hear, you know, that's that's a substantial amount of time in your first run as a CEO. What what were sort of the biggest biggest learnings for you from that time? Oh, there's so many, Jack. <laughs> Gosh. I would say um in no particular rank order. The first one, this one really stuck with me and still does, is it's not about you. 
I think that's a thing that even founders that are perfectly nice people don't totally get that. Because what I mean is the company will, um, it will not work if you are solving all the problems and having all the big grand thoughts. Ideally, you've hired people that are going to be superior to you at those sorts of things. And so your goal is at a certain point, right? Of course, you have to like get the key rocks moved, but it can come up pretty fast where the goal is to enable other people to like be creative and have good ideas and edit out bad ones. And then, yeah, your goal is to almost be like a editor in chief as opposed to like chief problem solver, visionary guy. I remember this very clearly where we were, so Siftio is a hardware company. Mm -hmm. So we were making things and mass producing them and putting them into like stores like Best Buy and whatnot. And um, we're working on the second generation of the product. And we knew that there were like a few things we needed to correct between generation one and generation two. And Dave and I were in the conference room, almost literally bashing our heads on the table, trying to figure (laughs) out how we could solve even one of them, you know, two. And I was like, if we can get two out of three, that's pretty good. And my, I believe my forehead was literally on the table. And Dave was just kind of like staring blankly as we tried to like problem solve this. And then I, there was him or me, it doesn't matter. Someone said, you know, there's like a company outside this conference room of, of like pretty smart people. Like, why don't we just ask them, you know, like how we can deal with this. And so we did, you know, we like set up a time. And we're like, All right, everybody. Friday, noon, no more work. We're just going to buy some pizzas for everybody that wants to stick around. And we are going to do this sort of like a a kind of guided brainstorm type thing. Mm -hmm. We're like, okay, here are the three problems we need to solve. Everybody go off into pairs. You have eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. Write down what you want. You have five minutes, you know? (laughs) And then we just like did that a bunch of times. And then everybody was feeling jazzed and it was fun. And then they left. And then Dave and I were like drinking a beer afterwards, just going through all these like drawings and we were like, Oh my God, if we just take ideas three, seven and eight, that would solve all the issues that it's crazy. Like, how is that possible? And I was like, all right, life lesson, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> avail yourselves of your team's energy and creativity and, and set them up for success in various ways. So that was definitely one. I think the other is just learning to appreciate your business from multiple angles. I think it can be common for CEOs, but also general founders to like look at their company through the lens of what they like or what they were trained to do. So if you're like a developer, you care about engineering or product engineering the most, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And you may not think too much about the other functions of your business or even understand your company that way. If you're more of a salesperson, that's all you think about. And, you know, I learned a lesson that's like, no one lens is more true or false than the others. And in fact, you should have a few ways of understanding your business. Actually, I had a professor of mine in grad school said, said to me, you don't really understand something until you understand it in three distinct ways. But that was like pretty true. So for me, yeah. my, I had an initial aversion in my first company to, you know, to finance. <laughs> Honestly, I was like, who cares? Like, we seem to build something that's cool that people want and it'll all work out. And luckily I had this advisor who was like, dude, no, <laughs> you know, 
And I gradually, it was like, he finally beat me down into building an operational model for the company. And now, you know, I got kudos. I got recently from our VP of finance for being like the most financially interested CEO he's worked with. But I think that if that's true, that's great. But I think for me, it's like, those are all useful and valid. Like you should be able to look at a PL and balance sheet and understand a company. If that's your only thing you can see, you should be able to read it and get a sense for what it's like there. If you look at their webpage, you should get a sense for what it's like, you know? Um, and so just learning to appreciate the different aspects of a company. It's not like one's better than the other, but you can't index yourself off on only one. Yeah. That's a, uh, I think a really, really succinct way of, of re-expressing what, what we often hear people talk about that, that multidisciplinary perspective from a perspective of sort of heading off weakness. You know, if you don't pay attention to finance, it will come back to bite you. Right. Or you have to be, Mm -hmm a student of the game on sales or you're never going to figure out commercialization, but it's not also, it's not often expressed as sort of like you are leaving valuable insights about your business on the table um, to, you know, to use your phrase, not that to, to take it in a different direction from that necessary evil category, you know, whatever discipline you're coming from. Um, that's very cool. And then, and, and so you joined 3d or you sold the company to 3d robotics. And you joined to run product first, and then you became the president of the company. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, and the the presidency part was interesting because, you know, it was around that time that I was thinking to myself that my tour of duty was complete at 3D Robotics. You know, I think that's just a normal pattern. If you you start a company and then you sell it, like, People don't generally expect that you'll be a lifer at the new company. I mean, that happens, but it's not common. And so I kind of felt like the main things that we wanted to do then were asked to do were were done, more or less. But yeah, the presidency was much more of like the board kind of asking me to step up and do that. And that was for a real operationally clear reason to kind of shift the company from a hardware-focused consumer company over to a product that we had launched that was targeted construction and and enterprise software-type product um, and help make that transition. And um, yeah, I wanted to do that for a variety of reasons, just to do a solid to the board, who was good to me and and the team, and just to help the company as best as I could. And, you know, like try to get that off the ground yeah. and then then go off and do something else. So that was interesting. I mean, I will say it's interesting to be a CEO and have been on a management team um, yeah. as not the CEO. And then furthermore, the president role was actually kind of interesting too because it's sort of in between both, right? Right. Where yeah. you're not just running a group, but you're not like, I am the CEO for the next however long it takes. Yeah, it's, it's an. I mean, obviously, we do those searches fairly frequently, and it, it's an interesting and challenging role to figure out what the right flavor of person. And you know, often, probably uh, uh, while we do the searches successfully, I do think if you look at sort of the macro landscape and people say, okay, who are the great presidents or maybe COOs? Um, you know, those titles sometimes would be somewhat interchangeable depending on the responsibilities. Right? Mm-hmm. They're often people who come into the role in a more organic fashion, like like you did. Um, as opposed to somebody externally hired into that into that sort of 
you know, would be uh, helming the ship, but not actually in that top job position. You know, one thing that has always struck me about working with you, even with our own, you know, watching my own team interact with you um, across our searches, I do think you have a very authentic voice as a leader and that you touched on this before, you know, I, I think you bring forth a safe atmosphere, but also a atmosphere where people feel challenged and want to bring their best selves to, but are, are sort of willing to put themselves out there with ideas and figuring out how to, you know, whether it's in our case, how to approach a given market or what steps we want to take with a particular candidate for a role. You know, when people talk about leadership, it's hard not to talk in platitudes, but what do you think defines your style as a leader now? And are there particular pieces of advice that you give to founders as they start to think about, you know, growing and leading their companies? Yeah. You know, there's a a lot to talk about there. I would say a couple of things are for founders, but especially CEOs of technology companies, the what you need to be doing from one phase to the next changes. Doesn't this change? It can actually be the opposite of what you were doing in the prior phase. And I think that's like, it's something just to be very aware of. So for example, kind of picking up what I was saying before, in the beginning, you are the idea person. Like there is no one else to have the ideas after all. And then later you became you become kind of the keeper of the vision flame, but really you're trying to enable other people to have ideas. And if you're just constantly the limiting reagent or the like uh you know, um, bottleneck on having new ideas, then your company will just grind to a halt. And so recognizing when you have to shift those things is important. Then honestly, like in terms of giving advice to people or, or reflecting my own style or, or both, I would say thing number one is don't freak out. Just don't freak <laughs> out. Um, yeah, actually, one of our core values is don't take yourself too seriously. And that's yeah. actually, if I have to pick a favorite, I, I like it because I think it captures a lot of things. Um, you know, I mean, it's a given that what you're going to do is like very challenging. And you could define that by odds of success. I mean, like most things don't work that are startups. Like, again, no judgment. It's just, it's just legitimately hard. So but what do you do with that information? If you're just going to like stress out and freak out, then... Not only will it be very unpleasant for you, it'll be unpleasant for those around you, but even worse, you will make your company more likely to fail. And the reason I'm saying that is stressed out organizations tend to be defensive. They're protecting things and startups have almost nothing to protect, you know? So I think that you want to play offense and you want to be aggressive. And so, you know, it's just like if you're... Well, I've never been in the NBA. I never told you this, Jack, but I'm not a professional athlete. But from what I that, hear... I am shocked <laughs> to hear that. I, I could have sworn that I saw, yeah, I saw that in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, that being loose is good. Playing tight is bad. And so, um, yeah, you know, I, I think that's something that I try to give counsel to people. It's like, you know, there, there could be some founders that are too loosey-goosey and they're not paranoid enough. I, mean, I know that happens, but... I would say for most of the time, most people, they're freaking paranoid. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, just be calm, you know, have a sense of humor. It's probably like better formula. than that. Yeah. Well, I think that's incredibly powerful advice. And I think in some ways, you know, 
especially in a world where I think leaders and founders, investors sort of have a tendency sometimes to there's a little bit of one-upmanship on the who's who's the most hardcore person out there, right? Uh, and I think even right now you're seeing that with some of the uh, the content that's coming out on what's happening in the market, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, are you presumed or what are you default alive or default dead or what are you, right? Um, right. I think that's apt advice for for founders and operators alike. Well, Jeevan, I, I know we're coming up against time here. I really, really appreciate you doing this. This has been a, a great conversation, and I know folks listening will get a ton out of it. So I'll, I'll just say from them and from all of us at Diversa, thank you for coming on, and, and thank you for your partnership. It's been really fantastic working with you the last couple of years. Hey, it was my pleasure. It was super fun. And like all good CEOs, I love talking about myself. So it's absolutely my pleasure. So yeah, no, and I, I I'll just pay you the same compliment. You guys have been absolutely fabulous. There's like a reason why we keep using you guys to build our management team. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Dare to be Legendary, brought to you by Diversa Partners. Feel free to check out the show notes for resources that we've mentioned throughout the episode. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, share with friends, and leave us a review. This helps us get content to more listeners like you. Thanks again, and stay tuned for our next episode.